You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. I'm Esther Rakusin, and you're listening to Locally Source Science. It's the middle of the summer, and you are probably spending as much time as you can outside, enjoying the sun and warm weather. Did you know that right now, there are citizen scientists outside making observations of bird life and taking water samples for use in scientific studies? These activities are taking place even during the COVID-19 pandemic. And they are possible because these activities are happening outdoors, where there is plenty of air circulation and it is more possible to social distance. Today, you'll hear about two citizen science projects that are happening in our area. First off, Liz Mahood speaks with Nathaniel Launer, Outreach Coordinator at the Community Science Institute, also known as CSI. He will describe ongoing citizen science projects involving monitoring of local bodies of water. After that, you'll hear Jeff P's interview of Dr. Emma Gregg. She is the project leader at Project Feeder Watch based at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Dr. Gregg studies bird behavior and ecology. She describes how Project Feeder Watch works and how the project concluded with an extra month this past season as the pandemic started to spread across North America. To close out the show, we will present an interview about a new remote youth education program being run this August by the Cornell Botanic Gardens. It is called Plants Have Families Too, and will provide materials to kids ages 8 to 11 so that they can get outside and learn about plant families. Cornell Botanic Gardens hopes that this program will inspire young students to become budding scientists. Locally Source Science listeners, my name is Liz Mahood, and today I'm going to be talking to Nathaniel Launer from the Community Science Institute about their citizen science programs. Citizen science is at the heart of the Community Science Institute's efforts to monitor the water quality of the lakes, rivers, streams, and watersheds in the Finger Lakes and Southern Tier regions. Nathaniel is the Community Science Institute's Outreach Coordinator and a trained conservation biologist, and he's the go-to person for local government officials and community members to learn about the water quality in their region. I spoke with Nathaniel about how the Community Science Institute facilitates citizen science and how their programs have been affected by the pandemic. So, Nate from Community Science Institute, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, first, I'd like to ask, could you just tell us a bit about what the Community Science Institute is? Yeah, of course. So the Community Science Institute is a nonprofit 501c3 organization in Ithaca, New York. And our mission is to partner with communities to protect water. And so we achieve that mission um, through our four volunteer monitoring programs our synoptic stream monitoring program, our red flag monitoring program, our biological monitoring program, and our harmful algal bloom monitoring program. 
And for each of these programs, we recruit and we train and we coordinate volunteers really across central New York region uh, to go out and monitor water quality and local conditions on streams and lakes, and also to collect samples uh, for analysis here at our state certified water testing lab in Ithaca. That's really neat. So yeah, so you, you guys really do rely on a lot of citizen science um, input. Um, so could you tell us a bit more about the citizen science programs that the CSI has? Yeah, yeah, of course. So as I mentioned, we have four programs. Um, our synoptic stream monitoring program is our longest running program. I think, you know, those the a few of those groups started way back in 2003 i think fall in virgil creek were the first group to start monitoring their watershed um so i think they have the longest running data set so far hmm. um, and our synoptic stream monitoring program consists of groups of volunteers who will go out and they will monitor multiple locations throughout a sub watershed on what we call a monitoring event day. And so that is a time when these volunteers go out in pairs um, or maybe in groups of three uh, to each location throughout a watershed uh, all on one day and collect some field measurements, um, some observations of the local conditions, um, and then some samples for analysis here at our, our certified water testing lab in Ithaca. And so the Synoptic Stream Monitoring Program is designed so that we get kind of a snapshot of water quality across and throughout a sub-watershed all on a specific day. And we have those monitoring event days three to four times per year. So mostly we're capturing base flow conditions, um, but once per year we try and get out in response to a big storm event and coordinate quickly to uh, monitor and sample water quality uh, during stormwater conditions because that stormwater data is really important data to have to understand the dynamics of water quality in a subwatershed. Okay, that's pretty neat. I yeah. never thought of that before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's that's really important work that um, that you collect from these citizen science programs. Um, so the data that you have, uh, what, do, what do you do with it? Does it inform other uh, research that the CSI is doing? Or just in general, what, uh, what do you do with the data that the citizen science programs collect? Yeah, that's a great question because it's, it's really a central part of our mission. Um, and we're always trying to make people more aware of it. And what we're trying to make people aware of is that all of this data that we collect and that we have collected you know, over the past 15 years in some cases, uh, we make publicly available on our water quality database. Um, and you can find that database on our website. Um, and so, you know, we make all of this data available and a lot of it because it's analyzed at our state certified water testing lab, it is regulatory quality data. So what that means is that water resource managers, municipalities, agencies, entities like that can potentially use the data to make management decisions um, or to, to implement uh, 
best management practices like um, putting in stream buffers or things like that to help improve water quality. Um, so it's a really powerful resource, uh, not only for agencies or other organizations like that to make management decisions, but also for citizens in the area who are interested about local water quality, they can go onto the database and look at, you know, maybe a stream that they live near and check out what the water quality is near them and use the database as a resource uh, to educate themselves about local water quality um, and what can be done to improve it. Yeah, that's so important. Um, that's great that the Community Science Institute uh, is so is so integral in, in that regard. Um, so my next question is, you know, since COVID-19, everything has been upended. Yeah. Uh, how has, how have your citizen science programs been affected by the pandemic? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I will say from the start that we have been very fortunate. Um, our support from local entities has continued, which we're very grateful for. Um, and we're also very grateful that we have excellent citizen scientist volunteers. Um, our volunteers, you know, they are trained. They've been doing this for a long time with us. Um, and, you know, they are very practiced in collecting water quality data and water samples for analysis. Um, and luckily, because uh, they are such excellent volunteers and because of the, the nature of our programs, where, you know, often volunteers will go out in pairs, maybe, you know, that's uh, spouses or family groups um, or close friends, um, because they go out in pairs um, to collect field measurements and uh, water samples from various locations. Um, we've been able to continue with our programs pretty much as usual throughout this monitoring season because, you know, because of the nature of our programs, it doesn't require that um, volunteers get together in large groups. So volunteers have been able to, to go out and collect, you know, water quality data in those, you know, small groups or pairs and do that safely. Um, and then back here at the lab, you know, we've just been implementing a lot of measures, um, including, you know, making sure that all of the things that come in from the outside are sanitized and, uh, you General. know, just, you know, safety measures to make sure that, that we're protected from exposure here as we interact with the public and our volunteers um, and, and other people who we partner with. Yeah, yeah, it seems it seems like social distancing might be a, a bit more uh, integrated into your citizen science programs than that they're outside and that people are working in small groups already. I guess that's that's fortunate yeah. that <laughs> the pandemic has hit. Um, yeah, that's a great. Yeah, that's another another great point. point that you bring up is that, you know, all the work that these volunteers do is outside, you know, which is a very low risk scenario um, during these times, a great way to get outside and enjoy the outdoors while also doing something that contributes to the protection of, of you know, the nature around us and, and the outdoor spaces that we love. Right, absolutely. That sounds yeah. like you guys are full stream ahead, pun intended. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today and talking all about the important work that the Community Science Institute does 
and how citizen scientists are so integral to it. Thank you very much. They really are. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. I'm happy to happy to talk with you about it today. Thank you for having me. You just heard Nathaniel Launer from the Community Science Institute on their citizen science programs. If you would like to learn more about the Community Science Institute or become a citizen scientist yourself, head to their website at www.communityscience.org. I'm Liz Mahood, and you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. Please let us know about your science news. Tweet at us at FLX Science Radio. You can check out our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. At that site, you can subscribe to new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcast apps. This is Jeff P. for Locally Sourced Science. Today, I will be interviewing Dr. Emma Gregg, the director at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology's Project Feeder Watch, a community-based citizen science program aimed to survey bird feeding across North America. I chatted with Dr. Greg to learn more about the program and how they have adapted during the coronavirus pandemic. Um, I've been managing Feeder Watch since 2013 and just really love this program. I didn't know a lot about it when I first started, but I've grown to really love it. Watching people across the country submit their bird counts and teach us all about bird populations is really just totally inspiring to me. I I can't believe the program exists and that people do so much to keep it going. Yeah, because it's primarily a citizen science-based project, right? And so from what I read that it primarily is done during the wintertime, correct? That's right. So the Feeder Watch is a winter bird counting effort that runs from November through April, although we are thinking about ways in which we could extend the season, especially after this year, because we extended it a little bit in response to the pandemic and people being stuck at home. But typically, yes, it runs from November through April. I see. Gotcha. We can go into a little bit more detail in a bit, but I think it'd be really good just for the audience to kind of get a sense, for those of you who already didn't know about Feeder Watch. Can you explain a little bit about how that process works? Absolutely. It's fundamentally very simple. All that people do is they identify and count the birds that come to their bird feeders and they can do it once or they can do it many times throughout the winter, whatever they prefer. So the number of times they count is really flexible. And over time, with many people doing this, what we end up with is a really clear picture of what birds are where, when, over the winter. Gotcha. And then so kind of on the flip side of that, given that it is a winter-based project, what do you end up doing as a project during the summer in the other half when you're not collecting that data? Well, we write an annual report called Winter Bird Highlight and do other data analysis over the summer that we just don't have time to do during the season. The program started in the 80s with this framework. So as time has gone on and technology has gotten better, I think we've actually gained some more capacity to keep the program going year round. We're not quite there yet, but it's something that we're really thinking about um, 
if not year round, at least extending it beyond the, the current November through April time frame. So keep keep listening. Maybe it'll be longer next year. <laughs> Great, yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about how you've had to adapt things during this particular season, right? Uh, obviously, it doesn't fully overlap the time that you were collecting that information to with when the pandemic was starting to arise in the U.S. and Canada as well. But you can you go into a little bit more detail about that extension and what other things you had to clarify with citizens who were wanting to give information? Well, to be honest, extending the season through the end of April was actually no big deal. We had all the data collection infrastructure in place. So the only thing we had to do was change a few uh, settings on our data entry framework and database and then let all the participants know and say, hey, you can keep counting for a few extra weekends. Going through the end of April was very straightforward. And I think the most inspiring thing to me after doing that was the immediate feedback that we got from so many participants saying, thank you so much. I was dreading the end of theater. I'm so happy I can count my birds for a few extra weekends. So it was just so touching to know that people enjoyed it that much. And I think it really did give folks have a little extra something to do when we really were all trapped at home, as many of us still are. Absolutely, yeah. No, that sounds fantastic. Is there was there anything on your end, like as the data collectors? Obviously, you changed it so that they can give you more data with a prolonged period of time. But has the you know the the process of analyzing that data or creating those annual reports has that changed from your end due to the pandemic? Well, we did look at the data that came in over April uh, separately from, or we're starting to look at it separately from the normal time frame, so that we can see what sorts of things people were observing later in April, which is a time when a lot of birds have um, started to migrate. So you might expect to see different things than before. But in our, our annual report, we're being careful to um, just compare apples to apples. So we'll compare data from the normal time window this year to the previous years so that it doesn't get confusing and where this year might look different, but it's just because we extended the season. If we were to consider all of this season as if it were the same as previous seasons, if that makes sense. I may have said that in a kind of funny way, but. No, absolutely. It does, it does make sense. One thing I was curious about is what do you envision the upcoming season to look like? Obviously, the pandemic, it seems like it's going to persist for a while and it probably will venture into when the season starts again, right? And so I'm curious, what kind of considerations has the team made for this project? Well, we haven't yet quite decided about <clears throat> the beginning of the season, if that would be earlier. At this point, we're planning just to do the normal um, season start date, which is always the second Saturday in November. But I really loved keeping the season open through April. And so what we certainly may end up doing that again in the future, but I, I shouldn't say that for sure now. We just haven't quite decided because to do that long-term does require a little bit of extra staff support. So we need to make sure that's in place before we do any long-term changes. Gotcha. But that seems like something that if it was feasible, 
was something that worked during this transition process and might be something that could be long-term? Potentially, yes. And I would love it to be. If we can make it happen, we will. Was there anything that was challenging in all this? It seemed like people were very happy about the switch, being able to find their additional time to do this. But was there anything that was challenging that you hope to avoid in the future? I'd have to say no. It was just a wonderful experience all around. I'm so happy we did it. It was sort of the off-the-cuff idea that someone said to us within the lab of ornithology and we thought oh well gosh of course why don't we extend the season and then there we did it it went great i don't think there was one bad thing about it other than of course the context of the pandemic which is terrible but um Mm -hmm. the season extension itself went wonderfully based on our conversation Project Feeder Watch remains very active during the pandemic and has even brought in new data that was previously uncollected. Dr. Gregg mentions that this program is perfect for a pandemic, since individuals can easily carry out these surveys with few tools straight from their backyard. To learn more about Dr. Gregg's work and the Project Feeder Watch program, go to feederwatch.org. I'm Esther Rakusin for Locally Sourced Science. When you think about plants, the ones that might first come to mind are the angiosperms, or flowering plants. But there are a lot of other groups of plants. Mosses are one type that you might be annoyed to find in your lawn. Ferns are another group that fills up lush areas of the woods. Then there are the gymnosperms, flowerless plants that make seed-bearing cones. All these groups of plants are made up of families that have common characteristics. Cornell Botanic Gardens will be offering a remote youth learning experience in which kids aged 8 to 11 can learn about these families. It is a four-week program starting on August 10th called Plants Have Families Too. To learn more about the program, I recently spoke with Raylene Ludgate, Youth Education Coordinator at Cornell Botanic Gardens. She is the organizer of the program. I started off by asking her how Cornell Botanic Gardens decided to present this program. Raylene talked about how this new remote educational program is related to Judy's Day, a family learning festival that has been taking place at the Arboretum at Cornell Botanic Gardens for many years. Judy's Day is named after the late Judy Abrams. So Judy Abrams was a really good supporter of Cornell Botanic Gardens. And um, unfortunately, she died in her 50s and her family and friends endowed a name, brand, Judy Abrams Programming um, and gave the endowment to the Cornell Botanic Gardens. The Judy's Day started in um, 1995, and I've done 13 of them. And um, the first year, there is an event outside, and then we try to bring Judy's Day to the classroom. And then the next year, it's a new theme. So it's been a little bit different now because um, everything's remote, so we can't have events. So I was trying to think of ways to bring Judy's Day to kids. And I thought, oh, let's try a remote program. Our last Judy's Day was Plants Have Families too. So I'm using a lot of materials that we developed for that big event um, to try to reach students in their houses. 
I asked Raylene why she thinks this course is important. She talked about how she is hoping that young students and their caregivers will appreciate what plants do for us. Plants are so important to the world and we kind of tend to take them for granted. I think it's called plant blindness. You, they're there and you don't see them. They're not moving. They don't have eyes. But I think um, we're realizing how important they are and to all of us and how we need to learn about them so we can take better care of them. If you like to breathe, and you better thank a plant because that's where the oxygen comes. If you like to eat, uh, it all starts there because even if you never eat a, um, a plant and you only eat meat, then that cow or that animal also had eaten plants. So, um, and, and then the whole thing of absorbing carbon and uh, cooling the environment, preventing runoff. So, so many reasons why plants are so important to all of us. During our conversation, Raylene told me about the plant biology graduate students who will also be facilitating the remote class. Jesus Martinez Gomez and Heather Phillips are graduate students in the Cornell University School of Integrative Plant Science. They are doing their thesis research in Dr. Chelsea Specht's lab at Cornell. Together with their colleague, Clarice Guan, they also created some of the materials in the kit that participants will receive. I asked Jesus and Heather why they decided to participate in the program. First, you'll hear Jesus, and then Heather speaking. I've always been interested in, in outreach activities, especially when, especially outreach activities that are focused on kind of teaching people about plants because they're such an integral part of our everyday life, yet feel like they get a little bit overshadowed by their animal counterparts. Um, but specifically now, uh, more recently with, with Corona happening, I think it's important to try to connect with the communities we live in. Um, and Raylene, uh, who works at the Botanical Garden, reached out to us and I was happy to to help out in any way I could. Uh, I guess I just really got interested in science as a kid, like going to kind of summer camps and programs like this. So it's always something I've been interested in volunteering for. Here, Jesus talks more about what the program will focus on and about what will be in the kit. The idea of the, of the event will be um, Plants Have Family too. So learning about kind of how to classify and identify and distinguish different plant species that um, they may uh, encounter like around where they live. And so in the mail, they'll receive a little um, kind of family tree of plants. So it'll have like names associated with them, as well as a little booklet with um, kind of a dictionary with terms as well as drawings that was done by uh, Clarice Guam, another grad student um, in, in our lab. Um, and a little circle where they can press uh, some of their plants to hopefully uh, keep for later. Next, Heather discussed the idea of the plant family. Introducing them to this concept of like, there's these different plant families and they're all kind of related to each other in this like, kind of a family tree way, kind of a general introduction to evolution in that sense. And then hopefully trying to get them to at least recognize some of these larger families like the angiosperms and the gymnosperms. So then eventually when they are going out in the field to collect things for the other classes, um, they can start appreciating the differences between like flowering and non-flowering plants. Another item that is included in the kit is a hand lens. Here, Jesus talks about how kids will use it. 
in the little goodie bag will be a little hand lens. Um, so us botanists, uh, especially the ones of us who go out and do field work, one of the, our instrumental tools is our little hand lens. And it's essentially a magnifying glass um, that you could use to kind of look down into the tiny, tiny world of, of plant morphology and details. So we, we're hoping um, that they'll be able to use that to, to look for some of the more um, nuanced characters of these plants. I then asked Jesus and Heather what the kids will learn from the class. This, this will be exciting for the students to kind of have a little independence in, in exploring their world, hopefully with some guidance, but exploring and taking a deeper look at, at the plants that they, that they live with. And I think um, students will leave having a little bit of a better appreciation for plants. And hopefully, I mean, I think in one um, in one way that this connects with us intimately is with the food we eat, right? A lot of what we eat is with plants. So maybe they'll learn a little bit more about uh, about what they're eating and maybe they'll eat their vegetables. My hope is that they'll be able to kind of identify some of these uh, major plant families. And then on top of that, I think they'll become more familiar with just some kind of the general morphology of plants. So, you know, what are the organs within a flower? And then how do flowers, uh, how are those different from, say, the pine cones in a gymnosperm? If you are interested in finding out more about Plants Have Families too, visit cornellbotanicgardens.org slash explore slash events. You've been listening to Locally Sourced Science. Jeff P. and Candace Limper produced the interview of Dr. Emma Gregg. And Liz Mahood produced the interview of Nathaniel Launer. Our theme music is from Joe Lewis, and other music is by Blue Dot Sessions and Ben Jordan. You can find all of our archive shows and subscribe to our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. Science out.